Again, he shook his head. The world's gone mad, he thought. The dead walk about, and I think nothing of it. The return of corpses has become trivial in import. How quickly one accepts the incredible, if one only sees it enough. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. This is Genre. We are two guys who used to work at a bookstore in Portland, Oregon. We used to talk about books for a living. Now, we only talk about them for fun. We are reading old genre and pulp fiction with an open mind and exploring what makes them so fantastic. I'm announcing today that we have a brand new email address where you can ask us questions or give us recommendations for your favorite books. Talk to us at genrepodcast at gmail.com. This week, we have one of Bob's books, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. So, Bob, why this book? Yes. So, this question gets more and more interesting every week as we read more books. And last week, we read Herbert West, Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. We found that Lovecraft's take on reanimated corpses or zombies was very different from our concept of zombies today. So I wanted us to read I Am Legend by Richard Matheson because Matheson's take on vampires is very different from what from what I know to be vampirism today. So Matheson's book might might even be crossing these two genres of the zombie book and the vampire book. And I thought you and I could kind of tease some of this trope tangling out. Yeah, I had some ideas about what this book was going to be like just based off of the movie adaptations and I was I was really shocked by how different this story actually was from whatever it was I was expecting. First, what happened in the story? Okay, so first, our hero, bless you. Our hero is Robert Neville, the last man on earth. He is surviving alone in his suburban house. His wife and daughter have been killed years earlier. He doesn't know why he's fighting to survive, but feels like he must because, well, he's humanity's last chance at survival. Okay, fighting to survive. So what are we dealing with here? We got, we got a case of the zombies? So, eh, it's a little unclear, but Robert is certain that they are vampires, and he's using all sorts of tools, usually effective against vampires. You mean like garlic? Garlic! Garlic, garlic. Much of Neville's life revolves around growing garlic. He's built a greenhouse in his backyard. He sneaks out in the day to water and care for his garlic. But he he also sharpens stakes. You know, he set up mirrors all around the house. And fortunately, he has a giant cross tattooed on his chest. So he's like Van Helsing crossed with a suburban survivalist type. Yes, 100%. This is your crazy uncle stocking up on MRIs and automatic weapons and building new fences around his home. It's hard to cope, though, being the last man alive. And constantly, Robert is dealing with the vampires pounding on his windows and doors. He's boarded them up. He's tried to hide out in his house, but they know he's there. And all through the night, they pound. So he just cranks up the classical music and tries to drown them out by, well, drinking himself silly every day. Yeah, the, the drinking was out of control. I started keeping tabs on just the number of times that he, he spills his whiskey or, you know, he throws it across the room in rage. Like one time he, quote, flung the glass against the wall and stood watching the liquor run down onto the rug. Hell, he says, I'm running out of glasses. And one time he just crushed the cup in the palm of his hand until it broke. Another drunk quote I like is, uh, quote, his feet landed in the puddle of whiskey and he felt it soaking through his socks. Do these angry drunk tendencies, do they do they fix his vampire problem? No, the, the drinking continually gets in the way of his preparedness and his ability to defend his home. So like when he... He mentions he should have soundproofed the house to drown out the zombies, but, you know, he's been too busy drinking. He should have made more stakes in the past, but he's been too busy drinking. It's the same thing for his greenhouse. So really, Robert is barely keeping it together. And worse, when he gets really drunk and really angry, he makes bad, impulsive decisions. I'm having flashbacks to my undergraduate years. Ugh. So 
What does he do when he gets super drunk? <laughs> he goes to a kegger. He gets super angry when he gets super drunk. And sometimes he passes out and it's chill. But sometimes he just flings his door open, even in the middle of the night, flings his door open, rushes out, and just starts these angry brawls with the vampires. So, quote, a man's arm locked around his neck. He lurched forward, bending at the waist, and toppled the man over his head into the others. He jumped back into the doorway, gripped both sides of the frame, and kicked his legs like pistons, sending the men crashing back into the shrubbery, end quote. Yeah, I don't know why, but when I was reading this chapter, every time he'd do stuff like this, I'd imagine each of these vampires as like Count Von Count from Sesame Street, and it was just super funny to visualize. One knockout, two knockout. Yes, but the, the neighbors, even though they're vampires now, they look just like they used to. So these people look like his old neighbors, and it's almost like he's just rushing out to the guy watering his lawn and just beating the hell out of him. But, you know, they are coming to his house, banging on his walls, threatening him. So he's defending himself, I guess. But it's got to be a weird experience for Robert Neville. So right around here in this story, we start to get some real upending to the linear narrative. So like Richard Matheson goes real experimental fiction on us. What happens to our story? Yeah. So throughout I Am Legend, Robert Neville in these alcoholic drifts in and out of consciousness he will flash back to his pre-vampire life when his wife and daughter were still alive. And losing them seems to be what's fueling his alcoholism. I don't remember the movies very well, but I don't remember them using this kind of drifting in and out of memories like this. Maybe like aside from a random flashback, it seems like they're pretty linear storytelling. Yeah, the Will Smith movie is definitely more linear. He loses his daughter and wife too, but... In the movie, this is shown kind of pretty early on, and we just see it once when everyone is evacuating, you know, at the peak of the virus. But there's not a lot of flashbacks after that. And I think in the movie, they also drop the alcoholism, something which is central to the book version. One more thing I think is interesting. In the movie, we don't get this weird, uncanny representation of the vampires. They don't look like your neighbor. They don't look like the guys cutting the hedge. In the movie, they just look like monsters. And they act like mind-dead zombies. They just attack. But in this book, they are kind of rational, and they still have personalities. Okay, so the book is different, maybe even better than the movie. But if you can get anyone to make the movie that you want to see, who are you going to hire? I want someone to bring the weirdness of Robert Neville's old carpool buddy showing up at his doorstep and saying, come out, Neville, and, you know, threatening to eat him. I think that's a great, I think that's a great moment. And so I think these weird, uncanny moments of these blood-sucking death machines, you know, it makes me want a surrealist director or someone who loves the uncanny. So I vote David Lynch. Lynch, yeah. That could work, but... I'm not buying it. I think we need Terrence Malick to do this. Like, just imagine Brad Pitt in the Tree of Life, but there's vampires everywhere. I'm all for it. More Brad Pitt. So we have a flashback to better times. And so when we meet back up with our protagonist, he's kind of a changed man. Mm, changed for the better or worse. It's hard to say, but I think probably for the worse, although he knows what he's got to do. And he starts studying the original 1897 Dracula just to get a sense of what makes a vampire. Studying Dracula. So you mean like he's opening Bram Stoker and, and just reading it like a textbook? Exactly. He opens it up between these whiskey benders and he will read passages, treating it not like fiction, but almost like folk records of, you know, different accounts of vampire sightings. So one interesting thing that he notes, comparing the textbook with his own real life, is that the book always talked about garlic blooms, so kind of the symbol of garlic blooms keeping vampires away. But Robert Neville starts to discover it's not just garlic blooms, but the garlic itself. So he can use the cloves, the blooms, or just garlic oil. And he starts basically systematically testing these old magical assumptions through his own 
lens as a scientist. So at this point of the book, we've really made the transition from him being this kind of self-pitying alcoholic into something like this, like scientist, I guess you would say. But once he gets there, what interrupts this change? A boy and his dog. Neville, he finds the first sign of life in three years, and it's just a normal little dog, well, medium-sized dog, trying to survive in the vampire apocalypse. Yeah, anytime I see a dog in a story, I immediately bristle, especially when, like, the main character is, like, you know, ruffling its fur and feeding snacks, because I just know that the dog is going to be dead soon. Yeah, he tempts it in with some hamburger meat, which is some of his last meat he was going to save for himself, but he wants this companion. But then he finds out the dog is infected. He starts to notice its strange behavior, but he makes a complete vow to heal this dog no matter what it takes. Ultimately, no matter what he tries, the dog eventually dies. So here's a little moment. Quote, you'll be all better soon, he whispered. Real soon. The dog looked up at him with its dulled, sick eyes, and then its tongue faltered out and licked roughly and moistly across the palm of Neville's hand. End quote. Just awful. Okay, so Neville's truly lost everything now. He's like John Wick right before he digs up the box full of guns. So what does he do? What happens in the end of the story? Yes, just like John Wick, only in reverse. So now the beautiful woman comes into his life, she and Robert fall in love, and they live happily ever after. That 100% did not happen. Okay, okay, you saw through that. But a woman does come into his life, and she doesn't trust Robert, and Robert doesn't trust her. When they first see each other, Robert just bolts and chases her into a field. Then, you know, he kidnaps her and drags her back to his house for her own safety. Then he insists on testing her blood for infection. But that's the interesting thing, because she's she's out walking in the daylight, so according to the rules set down by the book, she can't be a vampire. Yes, but Robert Neville is a cautious man, and if we know anything from zombie movies, it's only the cautious ones who survive. So he is a garlic grower, a steak maker, a house fortifier, and now he's certainly not going to be tricked by anyone off the street. So he's... Doubtful of her, just because she's wandering around, you know, that's that's strange. But she's surviving in the sun, so maybe she's okay. He brings out some garlic at his house, and she completely recoils from it. You know, it's, it's making her physically ill, and she backs away. But she says it's just an allergy that she's already had. Ultimately, they argue, but she agrees to be tested in the morning. So then for the rest of the night, they just, they... They let loose, they drink a little wine, they listen to Schubert, and they, they get kind of close. They get, they get a little intimate. But then Neville turns his back and suddenly feels the blow of a hammer on the back of his head. Betrayal. Okay, so it sounds like she was a vampire all along. How do they explain all the non-vampire-y things that she was up to? Like... Uh, for the example, that her skin was like flesh tone and not pasty pale. She she takes a pill every day, and this, this pill capsule contains both the vampirism-causing germ and also some blood to feed that germ. So it keeps the infection satisfied, but without turning the host into a total vampire. So she's able to walk in daylight. And she's able to survive like a regular person, more or less. The, the pale skin, though, is just classic spray tan. Well, it sounds like it's not just her. I mean, she's probably not manufacturing these pills by herself. We've got a whole vampirism resistance society going on here with the anti-vampire secret police. Quote, they came by night, came in their dark cars with their spotlights and their guns and their axes and pikes, end quote. And then they get out of their cars and, quote, the dark-suited men knew exactly what they were doing. There were about seven vampires visible, six men and a woman. The men surrounded the seven, held their flailing arms, and drove razor-tipped pikes deep into their bodies. End quote. Okay, so these sound a little bit different than the vampires we met before. Like, they're not just stumbling 
pseudo zombies, right? They've they've rebuilt some level of society, at least to the point of they have a vampire SWAT team. A vampire hunting SWAT team. And this should be good for Robert Neville. He's he's anti-vampire. So you would think that he can team up with this anti-vampire crew. But because Neville is truly immune, which he explains by a long time ago in Panama, he was bit by a vampire bat and he thinks, maybe that made me immune. So because Robert Neville is truly immune and possibly the last of his kind on Earth, he kind of poses a big threat to this new world order. Well, not to mention how he's murdered dozens of these vampire people pretty much every day for years while they're sleeping during the daylight. I mean, he's going around and driving stakes into their hearts. So he's kind of their boogeyman. Uh, So, okay, so they come for him in the night. Do they kill him? They come to kill him, yeah. And they break down his doors. They chase him around the neighborhood. But the woman who betrayed him also really had fallen in love with him. So before she left, she left him a few suicide pills and a note that the bad guys were coming. So he takes the pills when they come for him and, quote, Robert Neville looked out over the new people of Earth. He knew he did not belong to them. He knew that, like the vampires, he was anathema to the black terror to be destroyed. Then, quote, I am legend. Yeah, I think this story feels really exciting to me because it's the first time that the setting for vampires is really shifted into the 20th century. I mean, this book was published in 1954, and that's right around the time that Christopher Lee Dracula stories are coming out. Correct me if I'm wrong, but these Christopher Lee movies aren't set in the 1950s. Like, they have this dark European castle setting that feels more like the 19th century. But with I Am Legend, we're actually placed right in the American suburbs. Castles and spooky go hand in hand, but do you feel the suburbs helped or hindered the horror of the vampires? Yeah, with these Hollywood movies, I feel like there's this, like, looking backwards aesthetic to where they're always fixated on putting vampires in the past. And I feel like it creates this distance between the viewer and the story being told. Like, I could be horrified that Bela Lugosi has some blood dripping from his mouth, but when it's set in like a European castle in horse and buggy times, it's kind of just a fantasy. Okay, so in a fantasy, maybe not as scary. So... Sounds like you are in favor of horror in the suburbs, but what makes it, what really makes it scarier, you know, about bringing it closer to home? Look, I'm, I'm just in favor of horror speaking to the, the present moment. So like, think about all the great horror stories that come out. They, they cast a new light on something in the present moment that isn't really being considered as, as scary. So like, Maybe every episode of Black Mirror is a is a good example of this. And I feel like the suburbs aren't a scary setting today or like like now it's not particularly scary or especially scary, but it's also played out like almost every horror story today takes place in the suburbs. But in the 1950s, eh, maybe it's a little different. So, okay, so... With I Am Legend, it's taken us out of the castle and into the suburbs. And then much more recently, we have Jim Jarmusch, where the vampires are just playing shoegaze and worrying about their lives. So if we go back to Bram Stoker, then we've got these ancient castles. What do you feel about that? Well, do you feel like Stoker was writing for his present day? Or was he using... like? Like, when he was writing, was he using his past as a horror aesthetic? So, like, his Dracula came out in, let's see, 1897. I was bluffing. I've never actually read Bram Stoker's Dracula, so I will also do some Googling. Okay, I've only seen the movie, but it is incredible. Francis Ford Coppola directs. Gary Oldman is, like, sexy Dracula. Winona writer Mina Harker, Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing, and Keanu Reeves pretty much just plays Keanu Reeves. That's all I want from Keanu Reeves. So it turns out the 1897 Dracula 
features Jonathan Harker writing letters in 1893, so only four years before. But in this book, we're not in turn-of-the-century England, but in the old country of Romania. So even though Stoker is writing in present day, it does feel to his main character and his readers like a foreign time or long, long ago. I think we need to read that. I also saw something about the oldest vampire story known. It's like written in Sanskrit in like the 700s. I won't butcher the pronunciation of the title, but in English, it's often translated as Vikram and the Vampire. So apparently back then, vampires were like trickster ghosts. They weren't the reanimated dead, but they were like a spirit that lived in an empty house of a corpse. It seems pretty good. Okay, so reading up on Vampire on Wikipedia, I found it's an idea that's been around for a long time. So, for instance, in both Slavic and Chinese folk traditions, any corpse that was jumped over by an animal, especially a dog or a cat, was feared to then rise from the dead, like a vampire or a zombie. Last episode, we read that Lovecraft story about the mad scientist Herbert West bringing back the dead, too. Herbert West, in Herbert West Reanimator, is an obsessive scientist bent on reanimating corpses and, you know, incidentally, maybe discovering the cure for death. In his pursuit, he creates these corpse monsters that storm through town, murdering and biting the limbs off of children. Robert Neville in I Am Legend is more ambivalent. He works every day, studying and testing DNA samples, but he also drinks himself stupid all the time and just feels like it's his moral imperative to keep going. So he keeps going, but reluctantly. Yeah, I think Robert Neville is clearly unwell, but his unwellness is coming from his loss. And Herbert West is also unwell, but it seems like it's coming from his obsessiveness. So both seem to not be able to really see that things aren't going to end up well, right? So like something about each of their unwellness puts these blinders on them to where they're just not able to recognize that their actions will have negative consequences for them. Hmm, yeah. Herbert West creates these monsters that murder and Robert Neville kills anyone who threatens him, just assuming that they are incurable vampiric monsters. Does he does he make any distinction between the different kinds of vampires? I mean, could he have known that he was murdering all these people who were actually, like, participating members of a nighttime society? Mm. He definitely notes that there are two distinct stages of vampires. There are some that act totally mindless, like zombies, but there are others, like his old neighbor and carpool buddy, Ben Cortman, who he talks just like he used to. He more or less appears like he used to, but paler. But now he's always threatening Robert, trying to kill him or at least turn him into a vampire. So even though Robert recognizes that one kind appears more human, there's still a direct threat to Robert and will eventually become the zombie-like vampire. But Robert never sees any sign of this secret society until the very end of the book. Yeah, I have to wonder if that's like a limited narrator thing that Matheson is trying to trying to pull. Like maybe the signs were actually all around him and like a and a attentive reader could actually pick out all the signs that there is this you know, vampire society, if they just, if they're looking out for it, maybe it's hidden there in the text. But I think the narrator certainly isn't overt. And I think part of the problem is, is that, you know, he starts drinking before noon every day and he spends the rest of his time driving stakes through the hearts of like 40 people a day. So maybe, I mean, maybe he's just too tipsy and in the zone to notice. One thing I really think is good about this tension is in a scene with Robert and the woman who he chased through the field, they're, they're sitting on the couch and they're trying to figure each other out. Neville talks about killing vampire after vampire in pretty gross detail. And he talks about, you know, killing both the more alive and the less alive ones. And this woman who is a secret agent and trying to pretend 
that she doesn't know about the secret society. She can barely contain herself and she's reacting with disgust and just trying to soldier on. But, to, you know, to Neville, these things are all non-human. They're even anti-human because they're a threat to humanity. But to this woman, they're not things at all. They're just people. They're the new people and she is one of them. Yeah, I mean, it's not faceless and abstract for her. It's not like a statistic for her like it is for for Neville. And I think, aside from a few really vivid images of him like climbing upstairs and finding people sleeping in their beds, he really relays all of the killing that he does just through numbers. Like, it's very, they're very rarely treated as individuals within the actual writing itself. Right. To her, this man is a mass murderer, confessing all of his killings. Then eventually when she reveals it all to him, she says to Neville, quote, When I was first given the job of spying on you, I had no feelings about your life because I did have a husband, Robert. You killed him. Iconic moment. And the worst part is he probably doesn't even remember it. Actually, I feel like we're really underplaying how much his drinking is really the, the fundamental conflict of this book. More so than the vampires, everything in this book really seems to hinge on his relationship to alcohol. We've read characters, though, in the past who were addicted to substances, say Sherlock Holmes, he's addicted to cocaine when he's bored, or Mike Hammer to 12 packs when he's thinking. Yeah, but I think there's a big difference between this character and these two that you mentioned, because like Sherlock Holmes uses cocaine when he's in between different cases. And it's like, it's kind of portrayed as this like harmless pastime or even as, as like a personality quirk that he happens to have. And with Mike Hammer, his process of actually thinking through the details of a case is really hinging upon him sitting down at a bar and having a new drink delivered to him every 15 minutes. Like he repeats this process glass after glass after glass until he reaches a breakthrough. Okay, so harmless pastime or a way to get thinking done. But what does alcoholism do for this character, for Robert Neville? It seems like it really only gets him to, into trouble. Like when he gets drunk, he always seems to take these unnecessary risks. Like like how you talked about before, He when he runs out his front door and he starts getting into brawls with these vampires. And he has this kind of like desperation to the way he drinks sometimes. Like when we read, quote, he filled another glass and poured the contents down his throat. I wish I had a pipe with whiskey in it, he thought. I'd connect a goddamn hose to it and flush the whiskey down me until it came out of my ears. Until I floated in it, end quote. When we read I, the Jury, drinking was pretty cool. We thought maybe the alcoholic was a symbol of resistance to prohibition and puritanism. Like it seems to be with those, those other hard-boiled detectives like the 30s, Sam Spade, or the Thin Man, are we still getting this kind of rebellious feeling in I Am Legend? So what's the timeline on these three books? Are, are they all written in the same decade and, and by Americans? Detective Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon, that comes out in 1930. The Thin Man is published in 1933. These are all set in America. Same with I, the Jury, but that comes out 20 years later with My Hammer. 1953. Cool. And I Am Legend is 1954. I feel like by the by the middle of the 50s, we've like entered a different era in the public's relationship to, to alcohol, especially compared to these earlier books in the 30s. And I think maybe we can explain Mike Hammer having a similar relationship to these other guys like in the Maltese Falcon or the Thin Man, because he's kind of like this conscious calling back to the, the hard-boiled tropes that were really established in those early decades. Hmm. Just on a side note, I started thinking about The Great Gatsby, you know, like in the 20s and 30s, drinking's very cool. And then in every scene of Mad Men, which is like the 50s and 60s, drinking is always something that hurts a family or ruins a family. I don't know. Maybe that's what the 50s and 60s are talking about. But Mike Hammer, you know, he is a drinker, maybe to fit that old definition, just to look like a detective. Robert Neville is not a detective. He's just the last man on earth. So Mike Hammer picks himself up in the morning, sees nothing wrong with solving cases hungover. But what is Robert Neville's relationship with alcohol? 
Yeah, I think that Matheson is is calling back to the idea of like classy flapper drinking, but like when he describes Neville listening to classical music every night, so like we got this quote. He sat staring moodily at the bookcase, listening to Brahms' second piano concerto, a whiskey sour in his right hand, a cigarette between his lips. But then there's like this dark edge that comes through him, not only in the way that he keeps breaking things and hurting himself, but like just how he thinks about substances. So he's endangering himself. Is it recklessness or self-harm or a way to distract himself? So at one point, he talks about wanting a cigarette, and this is his self-monologue. Quote, He had about a thousand cartons in the closet of Kathy's. He clenched his teeth together. In the closet of the... The larder. The larder. The larder. Kathy's room. So, like... He's talking about how he keeps a thousand cartons of cigarettes inside of his dead daughter's closet. So, like, just by location, these behaviors are tied to his loss. But we also get the sense of there's this causal relationship, too, to where, like, he probably wouldn't be drinking and smoking like this every single day, all day long, if he hadn't gone through this trauma. And I think that. This whole, like, listening to classical music and and looking at the art, like, I think that this is him putting on airs of living the good life in order to cover up that pain that he feels. Like, at the heart of it, this guy is really in denial. Hmm. I think definitely the good life. And yeah, it's because of his pain and he's trying to block it out. But I think it's also just a zombie thing. Like, we often see characters finally... Laws don't exist anymore, and there's all this stuff left over. Now people go out, they can take any kind of liquor they want, any cigars, you can take anything. And I think we see this when the woman that he kidnaps or that he finds, she's in his house, and she notes how refined he is for having this beautiful mural in his living room. And then he uncorks a bottle of wine, and he puts on Schubert, and this almost moves her to tears because she thought, She'd never drink wine or listen to music ever again. Yeah, so she enters the living room and she partakes in his like nightly ritual. And she, it sounds like she's like buying into the surface of it, but she's not understanding the underlying cause in the same way that the reader does. And I think that Matheson is really different than those hard boiled novels that we were talking about earlier because the overall message of this book is really anti-drinking and anti-smoking and even anti-sex. I mean, Robert Neville's like salvation or whatever is really tied to how productive he is. I mean, like he he chastises himself for not cutting enough steaks, for for not murdering enough vampires, for for not researching a cure. I think I think Richard Matheson might be the most thematically puritan horror writer that I've ever personally read. Very true. It is a total Puritan struggle. Like he's supposed to be fixing his house, tending to his garden, but then all of these vices keep calling him away, getting him distracted. And he's obsessed with, you know, not getting any action in three years. And so his house, it just happens to be surrounded by all of these really sexy vampires. Sexy vampires. So how does he react to that? He does his best to ignore it, but they're like the sirens, you know, he stuffs his ears and he drinks and he just, he hears it as a constant dialogue in his head, you know, oh, sexy vampires outside, sexy vampires outside. Don't think about that, Neville. And a few times he even considers giving it all up and just walking outside, letting them drain his blood just to get with one of those sexy vampires. So quote, he never looked at them anymore. In the beginning, he'd made a peephole in the front window and watched them. But then the women had seen him and had started striking vile postures in order to entice him out of the house. He didn't want to look at that. So he's watching them through a peephole? I mean, earlier you talked about like a David Lynch adaptation of this story, and I feel like that would be the perfect director to really capture this dynamic. Do we get smutty vampires getting nasty in in other vampire stories i mean is this unique we should go on a smutty vampire search i think there's there's got to be more smut vampire stuff out there but i know for sure there's a lot of sexy vampires i mean it just seems 
there's a lot of vampire stuff coming out, but none of them are ugly anymore. You know, we've got Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Robert Pattinson, and all those sexy Southern Vampire Diaries vampires. And nobody wants these ugly vampires anymore. And it's gone completely the opposite way for zombies, whereas zombies could be, you know, relatively flesh, fresh corpses. Now it's just as gross as they can possibly be. That's the point of them. They're like half a body just crawling with the entrails pouring out. And it's like zombies have taken all the ugliness for themselves and the vampires just took all the glitter and ran. That's a really good point. I think I'm going to, next time I watch like a zombie movie, I'm going to see if I can find one hot zombie. <laughs> I think I'm going to be looking <laughs> for a that long movie. time. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think it's super interesting that all the vampires that you just listed are men. I mean, as far as I can think of, like Dracula, he's always like seducing some lady with his Transylvanian charms. But like this story, it's it's just women vampires who are trying to lure with sex. We don't have a hot man vampire in this story. Well, think back to, you know, 1987 Dracula. Count Dracula is old and definitely not sexy. But Three vampire women come into Jonathan Harker's room, they climb up the castle walls, they sneak in through his window, and they try to tempt him away from his wife. Not to mention all of the blood in his body, but Robert Neville, the book that he's reading, his access to vampires is this 1897 book, not any of the, the recent stuff we're familiar with. Okay, so so this goes back. Do you feel like physical attractiveness, or even not like attractiveness, but the ability to seduce is is like an intrinsic part of vampireness. Does a vampire need to be able to seduce people? We're definitely we're we're gonna have to read that Bram Stoker book cover to cover because I'm not sure. But in the the Herzog movie with Klaus Kinski, the temptation and sin I think is a huge part of it. And so these these sexy vampires try to lead Jonathan Harker away out of marriage into sin. And then Count Dracula himself is tempting Lucy Westerna. So I, it's temptation in that. It's desire in that. And that's that's where the sex appeal is. But I think in that book, we have we have the idea of sexy vampires, but also vampirism itself as sexy. So, you know, becoming a vampire is the ultimate sex appeal. And I think we see this a lot in future interpretations of the vampire with familiars wanting with extreme desire and doing anything to get it, you know, to become a vampire. Yeah, it seems like there's like this hotness arms race that is taking place from this book all the way out to the future, to the present day of vampire stories. But it's just, I just don't understand how we get from this to like Robert Pattinson and, and True Blood. Yeah, and where are we going to go in this arms race after Robert Pattinson? <laughs> He's broken the mold. I feel like Gary Oldman was like the perfect Dracula because you need to have him, you need to have Dracula be sexy, but there also needs to be this like element of grotesqueness, like, like hot, but also you're throwing up in your mouth a little. And I feel like if you lean too hard in either direction, I, I'm 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 suddenly not interested. Yeah, I think I think the perfect Dracula has to have a face like a train wreck. You know, it's you can't look away. And both Gary Oldman and I think Klaus Kinski is another perfect Nosferatu because they they are both really good looking men. They have these perfectly symmetrical faces, but there's something when they stare at you that's just horrifying. And that's that. Oh, I'm going to throw up a little bit, but ooh. Keep doing it. <laughs> I feel like compared to all these other vampire stories, like the Nosferatu's and the Dracula's, or even the Twilight's or the what the the last ones, only ones left alive. I think that's the Jarmusch one. But compared to the entire sum total of vampire stories, sexuality was really the most minor component in this story. Yeah, I mean, the sexuality in I Am Legend is mainly just because he's the last human on earth and he just can't get sex off his mind so really there's no temptation to the vampires except giving in and giving up so he doesn't have to do this day-to-day -day puritan struggle anymore tending to his garlic so i think it's not so much sexiness in i am legend but mm. just 
loneliness. Yeah. You know, it seems like the adaptations of this, like, they don't even play off the the vampire tropes at all. Like, this story is basically the template for a lot of zombie tales that come pretty quickly after this. I mean, the house setting really anticipates the Night of the Living Dead, and I guess even the Resident Evil games. And I think the the threat and the fear of home invasion is really like the overarching fear that's being tapped into here. Much more than questions of like, oh, what happens after death and, and anxieties surrounding that, that that you get in other vampire stories. Mm, yeah, we kind of have dropped the what happens after death. Now it's just taken for granted. And the thrill of the story or the narrative this, of the story is defending the home. And I think that's why I Am Legend, as a vampire story, sparks a lot of debate, debates. It's a story about vampires, and it looks very closely at all of the vampire tropes and, you know, engages each one for the first time with science. But narratively, I Am Legend has come, as you said, to serve as the basis for all these zombies, all these zombie movies after. And so Robert Neville, throughout the book, he has to prepare himself and his house from morning until night. Then he has to go out and risk his neck in the city to find food and supplies and then just come back and keep fortifying and do whatever he can to deal with the the night terrors of the undead just pounding on his windows and doors. So these are vampire monsters, vampire characters, but narratively, I think this is a zombie story. Let's get back to Lovecraft real quick. Do you feel like his vision of reanimated dead bodies and this vision of 20th century vampirism, do you feel like there's any overlap in between the two? I think even though they're kind of different subjects, I think they're going after the same idea. They have the same intent, and that's science. Lovecraft set this scientific explanation ball rolling, and he chose zombies, and now Matheson is continuing it, but he's choosing vampires. And I think Matheson is actually staying very true to the vampire canon because he's still acknowledging and engaging every trope from that 1897 Bram Stoker's Dracula. Well, that's kind of the genius of this book. And I mean, it's he gets Richard Matheson gets very, very creative in giving all of these vampire tropes like a biological or or psychological basis. It, it's it's kind of like hard science fiction, but for horror books. So, like one of my favorite examples is the vampire trope where vampires can't bear to be in the presence of the cross. But he he psychologizes this by saying like, oh, well, that's not actually true. It's that if the person was a Christian in their human life, then they can't bear to be in the presence of the cross. But if they were Jewish, then they can't bear to be in the presence of the Torah. It's super interesting. Creative. (laughs) Yeah, it's very creative. And it's, it's not like he's denying these old traditions. He is just kind of twisting it a little bit. Like you said, he psychologizes it slightly. So, so for instance, the, the Bible and the Torah, it's not because of some, some magic thing. It's just because the vampire's brain sort of short circuits because their human brain screams out that, oh my God, now I'm an abomination to my old God. And so their brain short circuits and they just have to run away. And it's the same thing for when they see the reflection. It's not some magic thing that vampires don't show up in mirrors. In fact, They do, says Matheson, but when a vampire sees its own reflection, it realizes how monstrous it's become and it just can't handle it and it runs away. So then another thing that he changes is going from the symbol of garlic blossoms as a magical spell in 1897 to garlic just as like a biological repellent to the the germ of vampirism. Yeah, the germ of vampirism. I mean, we're all really familiar with like the occult vampire or the satanically derived vampire, but this is this is very mundane, and you know it is really all anticipated by Lovecraft. But let's let's talk about the ending. Do you feel like the ending was a vampire story ending, or was it like a zombie story ending? You know, I hadn't thought about this until we're talking now, but. You mentioned Lovecraft, and the end of that is all of his creations coming back deliberately for revenge. 
And the end of Matheson's book is all of these vampires coming back for revenge because Neville has killed all the other, well, not vampires, but the people who are infected with vampirism but still live like humans. But the way that Matheson does it, you know, they roll up in these dark cars, they come out in dark suits, and they just start systematically killing the the vampires who are total vampires who have completely turned. And so it feels like the the terrible twist at the end of a utopian book. And we we've been hoping for this 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 glimmer of a society that's figured things out, that's gonna solve everything, that has a cure. But when they show up, they look and act just like Nazis. So maybe I think it's more of a zombie ending because it reminds me of The Walking Dead. The survivors wandering, trying to find shelter, and ending up in society after society and seeing every different kind of corruption in society that can happen in a society, you know, from seeing just bureaucratic tyranny to even Roman arena tyranny. So how do you interpret the end? What do you see in it? Yeah, I mean, they they the vampires, they do rebuild society, but all that they all that they bring back is really like the worst elements, like the 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 naked violence, uh, the totalitarianism. And I think it's interesting that it ends with him imprisoned pretty much on death row and getting executed. I mean, he's about to be executed. What he ends up doing is taking pills for a quick death. But I think this kind of like grand social statement is is definitely like a it's a zombie thing. Like vampires don't make vampire stories don't make grand statements about society. Zombie movies do. I mean, like, think about how people interpret the end of Night of the Living Dead as, like, a comment about race in America or Dawn of the Dead as being all about consumerism, for example. Well, like, these big messages, I'll say Dawn of the Dead, for example, because it's an intentional comedy, and the big message kind of works because if it's talking about consumerism, it just shows zombies walking through the mall, acting just like people who act like zombies walking through a mall. And so that works pretty well. But do you think the big social commentary message in this book, in I Am Legend, does it does it work like that or does it does it fall short? I mean, it I guess it works as a twist ending because there's it there's not really a way for us to see this coming because the entire like thematic thread of the book was his struggle with his vices. And then when we get this twist, it seems like we've we've dropped everything that he had built up and Richard Matheson goes full Hannah Arendt. It makes me be like, like, whoa, how did we get here so fast? But I do like how it imagines this kind of monster world order, you know? Like, have you seen anything like that either before or since where the monsters have just created this new society? Well, maybe not that I could think of many off the top of my head, but definitely in cartoons, I feel like that's a thing. And maybe even in Harry Potter, where witches and wizards, they have a complete society outside regular society. And this wizarding society seems to, it can get involved in any way it wants and even manipulate regular society. A wizarding world order. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how just from the seed idea of like witches and wizards, which are, you know, very lonely, solitary kind of monsters, they've created like an entire political citizenship for them to participate in. You know what? I... What, what do you think about zombies, though? Because I think zombie movies, at least in like these pandemic explanation zombie movies where it's a virus and everyone's turning into a zombie, that's also a form of world order, I think. And zombies, they in droves, they come and they destroy all sense of old order. And now the survivors must rekindle these little different versions of society as best they can. And I think we can see vampires as the zombies opposite because vampires always... Their, their groups are extremely select, and they, they travel in tight little packs, and they have to move in the middle of nowhere and not engage in society. They move to places like Forks, Washington. And then I think Harry Potter is maybe somewhere in between zombies and vampires, at least politically. Mm, yeah. And so the zombies, the zombies destroy the old order, 
but like they themselves they're they're kind of an anti-order like they're an absence of systems because really they're just they're just shapeless mobs so i mean it is the living who really rebuild that world order once everything else is wiped away and it's the living who are in control of that new kind of social order but with i am legend it is pretty unique that the society that we're left with is an undead society. Mm, okay, that's true. So yeah, well, at least an infected society. They're not quite undead, but they are going to be, I think, at some point. And so this does make I Am Legend stand out because the creature that takes over develops its own complete society. And, you know, we notice that actually with H.P. Lovecraft, too, because we don't often see zombies working together. They have no rationality, but in that book, they form a group with a purpose. And in this book, we have vampires creating a huge society. So that's also unique and makes I Am Legend special, I think. And I don't think there are any more books like that. So what are you feeling for next week? Well, since I Am Legend has thrown us into this, what is a zombie? What is a vampire? What is a vampire book? What is a zombie book? I want to go full vampire. Okay, so my vampire shortlist includes Anne Rice. Bram Stoker, and that uh, sixth century story that we talked about earlier, the Sanskrit one, Vikram and the Vampire. Sanskrit vampires. All right. Let's buy some plane tickets to India. Next week, we're reading Vikram and the Vampire or Tales of Hindu Devilry. So this is translated by the Victorian translator, traveler, spy, he, I guess he did a lot of stuff. His name is Sir Richard Burton. Plane tickets sound like a perfect way to turn ourselves into vampires, Zach. I'm in. Yeah, planes have wings. Bats have wings. Bats are vampires. It makes sense. I was thinking pandemic. <laughs> That's this week's genre. <laughs> I get it now. All right. That's this week's genre. Send us a message at genrepodcast at gmail.com. If there's any characters or authors you want to see more of, let us know. Until next time, talk to you later, Bob. Talk to you later, Zach. <laughs>